0: Hello, and welcome to Highlands Church Audio Sermons. Today, March 10th, 2018, we're continuing our series titled Walk This Way from Second Timothy. Today's sermon, Wrong Love, is going to be taught to us by Pastor Bob Wade from Second Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. We hope you enjoy. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness. Thank you so much for the family that you have given to us. Why is that giving that guy a blanket? Hold the door for Grandma Jay. Thank you. I got you, I got you! We thank you for the privilege that we have of serving you and to be disciples. I'm so sorry baby girl, let's try again, okay? okay go ahead and ease it forward. It's okay. Let's go. Come on. I got you. Good job. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. Hey, turn in your Bibles over to 2 Timothy chapter 3, 2 Timothy chapter 3, and while you're turning to that, let me ask you a question. Can love ever be wrong? Now before you answer, I want you to think this one through, okay? I mean, is it possible? Because I think a lot of people would, you know, immediately say, no, I don't think love's ever wrong. Love is the answer, and love is what it's all about, but my question is, what if you love the wrong things? I mean, what if your priorities, love wives, are completely skewed and they're just out of order completely? Is it possible? See, I think that's the issue here that we're going to be looking at this morning in 2 Timothy chapter 3. There were people there in the church, in the church community in Ephesus, which is the church that Timothy pastored, that Paul was writing to him there, and probably in every church for that matter, maybe even here this morning with us that there are people that were there that made themselves out to be someone or something that they really weren't. Paul would say about this people that they had the appearance of godliness. They sort of looked the part. They sort of looked a little religious. Maybe they looked a little spiritual. But they're really not followers of Christ. Now, later on in the chapter, next week and when. Thomas teaches, uh, he'll get into it, they call them impostors. In chapter three here, he's gonna tell us to avoid them. Now, here's my question. How do you avoid, I mean, who are, how do you know who they are? How do you know who the imposter is? How do you know the real deal from someone that's just sort of playing a part? Someone's just sort of religious. What's the telltale sign well, the issue really does come down to who and what we love. Paul is going to tell us here in verses 1 through 9, in fact, in the first four verses alone, he's going to tell us four different times the things that imposters love that are really out of line with what God is calling us to love. Now, that's important because what we love shows up in our actions, our choices, Attitudes. Let me read this. Follow along as we read through the passage here. Let's read verses 1 through 9. Paul writes and he says, But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will become lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, "...without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people, for among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened down with sins, led astray by various passions, always learning... And never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. Just as Jonas and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men opposed the truth. Men corrupt in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far. For their folly will be made plain to all, as was that of those two men. Now Paul starts off talking here in verse 1 And he uses a term that's really familiar to a lot of people. He says the last days. Most Christians, when they hear a term like that or see a term like that, immediately think last days, oh, they're talking about the future. They're talking about when Jesus is going to, you know, come back and how bad the world's going to be and, you know, the world's going to become this really selfish, you know, place. It's really preoccupied with self and more violent and, you know, all these different things that kind of go with that whole thought. But the phrase here in verse 1, the last days, isn't about the future. It's actually in the present tense. Now, how do you know that? Well, if you drop down to verse 5, Paul gives an instruction here. He says, avoid such people. That instruction there is present tense. That makes it make sense. I mean, how in the world could you look at a group of people and say, hey, I want you to avoid these people that are coming in 2,000 years? You wouldn't say that. I mean, they wouldn't obviously be around. You're telling to avoid the people right now. Now, that tells me that the last days are here now. In fact, the last days were 2,000 years ago. And if Jesus waits another 500 years before he comes, the last days will be 500 years from now. It's always been like that. The Bible, anytime it talks about the last days, really is talking about any time that takes place between Jesus' accession and his return. Jesus' accession, uh, that's just a religious kind of word. Jesus' accession is when in Acts chapter 1, after he'd gone to the cross, come off the cross, and now he's, you know, walking around talking and teaching people, it's that time when he goes up to be with the Father. He literally goes up into heaven. That was his accession. So any time between that moment which was a couple of thousand years ago, and his return, which we have no idea when that will be, is considered the last days because God always wants us to think that he could come back at any possible moment. The problem is we don't know when he's coming. Now, I will tell you this. If you want to go on the internet, I'm pretty sure that somebody will tell you when exactly he's coming. Okay. Here's the thing. Jesus himself said that that's not possible In Matthew chapter 24, verse 36, he said these words, But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. So we're not to be consumed with that. We're to be consumed with living this life that God has put us in right now. Which brings us back to the issue of these people in Ephesus and really in every single church. Do we really love what is most important? That's the first issue we're going to get to here in this passage. In chapter 3 here, in the first five verses, this group of people have their loves the wrong way, or they love the wrong things. Look what he says here in verse 1. But understand this, that in the last days, these these will come times of difficulty for people who become lovers of self. Paul says that the work of the church is going to become very difficult. And he tells us why. Because the problem with the church is it's going to be loaded with that time of people that will just love themselves more than any other thing there is. Now, he goes on to talk about four different things there. Verse two, he says they're going to love themselves. Then he says they love money. Verse 3, says they don't love good. Verse 4, he says they love pleasure rather than they love God. But it all starts off with self-love. Now, I know exactly what I'm getting into, the hornet's nest here, as I begin to bring this all up. Because the idea of self-love is a hot buzz item right now. I mean, people say things like, well, listen, shouldn't I love me first? Because how could I possibly love other people if I don't love me first? Or I just need to love me because my capacity to love me makes it possible for me to love other people. Or if I just love me, everything will take care of itself. That sounds good, but I don't find any biblical support for that. Jesus, in Luke chapter 9, verse 23, said these words, If anyone would come after me, let him love himself and th- no, didn't say that. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Amen. That means the first requirement for following Christ isn't self love, it's self denial. And by the way, this is all the way through the scriptures. I mean, if you've got a Bible, turn over to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. Keep your finger there in 2 Timothy. Romans chapter 12, look at verse 3. Paul writes and he says these words. He says, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned them. So we're not supposed to have some inflated view of ourselves that we're better than everybody else or more valuable than everybody else. Go back over to the right from Romans 12 to Philippians chapter 2. Look at verse 3 there. Verse 3 tells us, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourself. The point I'm trying to make here is there are no verses in the Bible that tell us to love ourselves any more than we already do. Now, I want to be clear here because I do not want you to leave here going, oh, well, Bob says we shouldn't love ourselves. No, I'm not saying that. I'm not saying you should hate yourself in any possible way. I, how could you possibly hate what Jesus died to save? What I'm trying to say is I think there's a given in the Bible that we already love ourselves. I mean, think about it. In Matthew, or Mark chapter 12, Jesus is writing, he says, love your neighbor as you love yourself kind of a given, right? Paul, in Ephesians chapter 5, when he's describing the relationship between husband and wife, stops off and he says these words in verse 29, he says, no one ever hated his own flesh, but he nourishes it. So it's it's kind of a given here that we actually do love ourselves, but we've slipped into a part in society today where loving ourselves has taken priority over loving God. And it's not supposed to be like that. I mean, if you're, you know, familiar with the athletic, you know, kind of talk, we're probably third on the love depth chart. I mean, when I come to faith in Jesus Christ, my love for Christ should take priority over everything. It shouldn't even be close. But then I follow that because Jesus, you know, said, hey, what is the great and foremost commandment? Love God with all your heart, your mind, soul, your strength. But the second is like the first, love your neighbor as you love yourself. So there's a sense that I'm supposed to love God first and then I'm supposed to love other people and then I follow with me. If you want to know an easy way to think it through, think of the word joy. Jesus, others, and you. That's the plan that God has for my life. Whenever a church or a life and person gets out of alignment and those things get the wrong place, the church and the people begin to fail. See, the problem here is there's so many people, though, that think that order ought to be reversed around. Well, I think it should be like, you know, Jesus and me, you know, kind of together. That was the problem here in the church in Ephesus. You see, the reason why this all matters is because what we love the most affects how we live. How I treat other people. I mean, if I really truly love myself, it's going to start showing up in my choices. It's going to, to show up in, in, in service opportunities. Because sometimes people come along and say, yeah, I want to serve, but, you know, I, I, don't, I serve and I think other people should serve me a little bit. You know, a, a servant of Christ never says that. They just serve. Because they're really not out to serve all these people. They're out really to serve the Lord. It'll show up in my stewardship. It shows up in my giving. I mean, honestly, if I look at it and go, look, that, I hate it when they talk about money because that's my money and I earned it and I get to do what I want with it. Trust me, Jesus is not at the top of your list. Because when Jesus comes to the top of my list, I begin to realize that's God's. I get to steward it. That's it. I get to be blessed by it, but it's still his. It shows up in how I respond to the scriptures. And by the way, this is an issue. If you don't think it's an issue, in fact, let me show you something. Turn all the way back to Revelation chapter two. Revelation chapter two, Jesus is speaking here. And, and it's interesting because in Revelation two, he's actually speaking to the church in Ephesus. Now, remember, Timothy is the pastor of the church in Ephesus, okay? This is who the letter is being written to. Jesus, in his own words, says these things. He says in verse 4, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. In other words, there was a time when you first came to faith in Christ that you put Christ first in your life. But somehow or other, you've succeeded in business or you've done this, and now you put you in the first place in your life. Not supposed to be like that. I want you to go back when, I want you to go back to your first love. I want you to go back to putting me. On the throne, So Jesus even calls out their love problems. But Paul keeps going here back to 2 Timothy chapter 3 because he says not only are these people lovers of self but they're lovers of money. Now here's the question, is money bad? No. Money's not bad, it's just a thing. What's bad though is according to 1 Timothy 6 verse 10 is the love of money. You see the love of money is the root of all sorts of evils. Well like what? Well, the love of money inherently pushes me to think of myself first. The love of money makes, you know, tithing difficult because it's mine. He keeps going here. The third one there is in verse 3. He says they're not loving good. I mean, I was trying to think what exactly would that be, and the only thing I can really think of is, you ever met someone that just doesn't seem to love sweet, wholesome things? I mean, to, I, I gotta be honest with you, I'm probably a nerd here, but you ever see like couples that are like in their 80s and they're walking along and they're holding hands? You know, doing this whole bit? I mean, there's something, if that doesn't like hit your heart, I mean, there's something probably a little bit wrong with you. I'm probably gonna get emails for that, I'm sorry. <laughs> The fourth one here though he says that talking about their wrong loves is in verse four he says they're lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. See the problem here is that pleasures begin to take priority over doing the right things. Over ministry. The problem is we're completely missing out. King David, in in Psalm 16, verse 11, realized that true pleasures lie with the Lord, that when I really, you know, come to faith in Christ and walk with Him, I really begin to experience the things that are amazing and wonderful. David said this, he says, To make known to me the path of life, in in your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forever." Look, we're making a mistake if we put all of our, our, our value into seeking pleasures in this life when I could have pleasures forever. If my affections are wrong, if my priority list, love-wise, is wrong, it will follow that it shows up in my actions and my responses. And so between verses 2 and 5 back in 2 Timothy 3, he gives 18 different characteristics Of people that are doing it wrong. He starts off there obviously with saying their love of self, they have a love of money, but then in verse two he says they become proud and they become arrogant. That means they're thinking way too highly of themselves. They become abusive, it says. You know, abusive people are users, they use other people for their pleasures, they're selfish. They're disobedient to parent, it says. There's a lack of thankfulness and struggling with authority. They're ungrateful. Instead of being thankful to God, we think that we've earned everything and it's ours. We're unholy. We fail to recognize who God really is and what he's done in our lives. They're heartless, it says. They seem to have no love for others. They're unappeasable. Nothing seems to satisfy them. They're slanderous. They have the ability to speak evil and really... Wound somebody. They're without self-control. They do whatever they please. They're brutal. They're not loving good. They have no heart for the good works of the Lord. Man, when 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 Grant and Christiane and got up here and talked about their their ministry in India, if that doesn't rock your heart a little bit, something's wrong. They're treacherous. Treacherous means they're deceptive. They're untrustworthy, they're reckless. They're without thought of the consequence. Somehow they think they get away with it all. Folks, we don't get away with anything like that. Psalm 139 tells us that God knows every single one of my thoughts. Psalm six, or Proverbs 16:2 tells us that God knows our motives. Back in the list here in Tim, or 2 Timothy 3, it says these people are swollen with conceit. Their self-love is noticeable. They become lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And verse 5 tells us they have this appearance of godliness. They look the part. You want to know the truth? They don't beat their wives. They haven't killed anybody. So they kind of look a little bit, you know, semi, like they're Okay but they deny his power because they've never entrusted themselves to God. Now, Paul keeps going here because now he's going to tell us from verses 5 through verse 8, he's going to point out the the imposter's character issues. Look at verse 5. He says, "...and having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power, avoid such people, for among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women." Burdened with sins, led astray by various passions, always learning, and never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. So he starts off in verse 5 and says, you need to avoid them. Don't hang around with them. Don't let them be the model. And by the way, that's a pretty common, you know, response to things like that. And Paul says in in chapter 2 of the same book here, in verse 16, we're supposed to avoid irreverent babble. And he writes to Titus in Titus 3, and he says, avoid foolish controversy. In other words, don't get mixed up in these things. But he also gives us a look at the characteristics of those who are the most vulnerable to be conned. He says in verse 6 that they're weak willed. In other words, they're given to to, to temptation easily, they're loaded down with sins. In other words, they're easy targets for someone that has bad motives because they're already in sin. They're swayed by various passions. In other words, they're controlled by their desires. Verse 7 says they're always learning. In other words, there's something religiously curious about them. It's like they keep thinking there's something out there. One more thing I need to know to figure this whole thing out. The problem is they're never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. And the reason why they don't do that is because the truth requires faith. You cannot arrive at the truth all by knowledge. Somewhere along the line, you've got to stop and go, I believe. I trust. Now, the third thing Paul's going to tell us here in verses 8 and 9 is he's going to tell us about their their end. Their end is certain here, he says. Look at verse 8. He says, just as Jonas and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth. Men corrupt in mind and disqualified regarding the faith." But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. You know, the Jewish community here would have known exactly who Jonas and Jambres were because of their education. These two guys are actually not mentioned any other place in the Bible. In fact, you have to go to extra-biblical literature to find out who these guys were. So there's two places you can go to. You can go back to something called the Midrash, which was the Midrash was basically an ancient commentary, or you could go to something called the Talmud, which was the the written Jewish tradition, their history stuff. Now, for example, the Midrash makes mention of Jonas and Jambres being assistants to a prophet of God who was a bad prophet named Balaam. That's not a good example. Now, I would think that because of the time frames that it may be true that that was their nickname. That probably wasn't their real name. They were called by people because they were bad. But it's more likely that this comes back to something that's talked about in the Talmud, about an incident that takes place in Exodus chapter 7. And let me sort of set this up for you. The Talmud tells us that there were two main sorcerers in Egypt. They were sort of the assistants to Pharaoh and their names were Jonas and Jambres. Now the story is that in Exodus chapter 7, Moses has been told by God, you're supposed to go to Pharaoh, and I want you to tell him to let my people go. And of course, you remember the story, Moses feels like he doesn't speak very well in public, so he says, can you know, Aaron go with me? I'll tell Aaron, he'll say it, and he'll kind of be like my spokesman there. And God says, okay, you know, finally let him do that. And so they go, they stand before Pharaoh. They get this audience before Pharaoh and they said, you know, let my people go. And Pharaoh's like, why should I let them go? And Moses tells Aaron, take my staff and throw it down. And he throws it. You see the Ten Commandments? Yes. Okay, so they take the, you know, they, they throw it down on the ground and his staff becomes a snake. Pharaoh's not impressed by that. So Pharaoh calls in his two chief sorcerers. Jonas and Jambres. And they come in and they lay their, you know, their staffs down and they become snakes as well. But if you remember the story, Moses' staff swallowed up theirs and they were gone. And ultimately, remember that Pharaoh lets the people go. Well, history tells us that these guys were so interested. In what Moses had done, that miraculous power of God, that they literally were trying to imitate the things of God. If he can put a snake down, I can put a snake down. They were so excited that when the children of Israel were actually let go, that they followed them out. They went with them. They crossed the Red Sea to, together when it, when it opened up. And later on, you know, when Moses was up on the mountain for that long period of time that the people became restless, that they came alongside of others and they stirred up the crowd to get Aaron to fabricate a golden calf. And Jonas and Jambres were their help, you know, making that golden calf. They have an interest in these things. They wanted to be around the people of God. They were there. They kind of thought it was interesting. I mean, they weren't breaking any massive rules that would have them thrown out. And yet they're not the real deal because verse 8 tells us about the characteristics of their life. It says they had depraved minds and an unapproved faith. In other words, their faith isn't real. It just looked like they're in the middle of everybody. Verse 9 says that they will not succeed. Now, what does that mean for us? Well, if you go back to verse 5, remember Paul gives gives this counsel. He says, I want you to avoid them. By avoiding them, what he's saying is don't let them be your model. That's not the model of how you live. Then he says in verse 9, you're going to recognize them. So in other words, we need to learn how to discern the truth. So what about us 2,000 years later? It's really important that you and I, when we read a passage like that, that we stop and do a little personal heart check. If the problem was these guys in, in Scripture here loved themselves first and then loved money and then loved, didn't love the good things but instead loved pleasures rather than love God, we need to start and do a little bit of a personal check and say, is that me too? I mean, is this the vibe that I give off? That I love me more than I love God? Because that can't possibly be pleasing to the Lord. In any way, shape, or form, it's not pleasing do I love God first or do I love myself first? Do I love money? Have I made it something it's not supposed to be? Do I love pleasures more than I love God? I mean, do I have a stewardship issue in my life? This is a place for each one of us to stop and take a look at our lives. Would you pray with me for a moment? I'd like you to take a moment right where you're at and just evaluate you for a minute. What's true about you? Is it clear and obvious that you've given your heart to the Lord, that you love him the most? Or does it look like to those around you that you love you the most? because that needs to change. Father, I pray that you would work in a very powerful way in our lives to help us to be rightly convicted about where our love, where our affections really lie. Lord, you've not called us to love ourselves first and foremost, you've called us to love you. And you've called us to love others Lord, if that's not true about us, would you convict us of it? Would you challenge us? Would you help us to change? Lord, our faith is, is centered on you. It's not centered on us. Lord, we want to walk with you. We want to love you the most. Father, move in the hearts, each of our hearts, Lord, to put you on the throne of our lives, Lord, in Jesus' name. This week, you're going to give a testimony. You will testify to the world that you love you the most or that you love Jesus the most. But the world will all see. They'll all know. The people around you will know. I want to encourage you. Make joy the truth of your life. Jesus, others, and then you. God bless you. Love you all.